Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Paul DePasquale of Tivoli Audio, creating quality audio of uncompromising design. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Paul DePasquale of Tivoli Audio. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up, sure. and what would you say your childhood was like? Um, I grew up uh, in Long Island, New York. Um, you know, middle class family. Um, you know, pretty, pretty normal life. I mean, I think one of the biggest things though, that was throughout my upbringing and childhood and in my family was uh, was music. Came from a very musical family. Mm. Um, I have a sibling. We both were you know doing music at a very young age. Uh, parents, you know. We're always supportive of that. So, you know, had a pretty, uh, you know, pretty uh, exciting and, and, and art-filled childhood. For, sure. For yeah. sure. Out of curiosity, when you say music, uh, what were you doing yourself uh, as a kid growing up? What specific instrument? What was that like? Uh, so when I was uh, at the age of four, I actually started dancing. Okay. Uh, mainly because I was just glued to MTV, right? So I was like watching yeah. guys like Michael Jackson and New Kids on the Block, whatever. So I got really into dancing and um, and I started doing that for a little bit. And then right around the age of about like six or seven is when I picked up the bass guitar. And then from there, it just, it kind of spiraled. It went from bass to piano, um, to trumpet, mm. uh, to, to guitar. Um, and then, you know, throughout my throughout my my childhood into my teen years um right around like 15 years old i was pretty much multi-instrumentalist and in all things from percussions to to you know digital recording to synthesizer work and everything and i was um, really focused on songwriting i did that mm. most of my childhood yeah amazing out, out of curiosity um where where were some of these learnings coming from and did you take private lessons or in school was that like <laughs> yeah yeah some some of it was private um, like for example, with the trumpet and some and drums um, uh, and even bass, I did more private tutoring and and, and really learned more of the technical um, and music theory uh, and all the kind of classical and, and and jazz backgrounds and upbringings. And then you know, as far as you know, my interest into the piano and to singing and to a lot of other instruments, it was kind of just applying those theories and just started to try to teach myself. Yeah. Um, to this day, I'm not the best with reading music, um, <laughs> even though I went to college and went to, you know, music school and everything. I I can't like it's not, it's not one of my strong points, but I can write music for all those yep. instruments, which is wow. is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just side note, I played uh, percussion growing up and I'm kind of awesome. the same as well. Sight reading was always Especially oh. once you get into different instruments. Outside of drum set, that was my specialty, but sight reading can definitely be a challenge. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a challenge. And it, it always came up as a thing when I was in school where they were like, all right, sight read this page. And you're like sweating bullets. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I saw you uh, went on to, you mentioned musical music school. You went on to Berkeley. Uh, what led you to going there? Of course, it's a high music background, yeah. but um, what did you study? So my whole reason of going to Berkeley was to study music engineering and production. Mm. Um, you know, at that time, this is going back 2003, you know, home studio work, 
um, you know, Apple computers were becoming more of a, of a, of an everyday, you know, household name, let's call it, uh, with, yeah. with respect to, to, to audio production and, and film production. And yeah, I wanted to get into the, to the production world and the, and the contemporary kind of recording arts. Um, and yeah, Berkeley, you know, they had a program that really focused on that. And that's really what, what led me there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, despite my, my parents, you know, best interest, they, they, always pushed me to do music but they were like you really want to go to school you know for music yeah it's a tough you know tough industry yeah um but yeah i did um and yeah i enjoyed it uh for 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 some years um after that i um, actually i moved on to a more technical degree in audio specifically in audio engineering Mm. where i got to really learn more about the electronics and acoustics Mm. Um, things that I, at the time I didn't really think were going to be that, you know, a necessity for me. I thought, oh, I want to make, produce beats in the studio and, and, and work in the record business. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought all those classes to be quite boring. Um, but here we are all these years later and I used that technical side of the degree way more than anything with for Tivoli. Sure. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, when you went to school at this time, what were some of your aspirations before Tivoli, before that opportunity came? Yeah. Uh, what was that? I mean, I wanted to be in music business, you know, I mean, yeah. I wanted to be um, as a songwriter or as a performer, um, you know, I was playing in several, you know, groups, I had a band, you know, I was really like trying to figure out, can I do the whole independent artists, you know, go on tour, you know, 90% of your year, um, you know, write music, try to get involved in licensing deals and the whole thing. You know, I really, that's what I, that's what I wanted to do. Yep. Um, that world though, and that during that time with, you know, technology at your fingertips, it, it changed so dramatically, mm. you know, it, it became very quickly that it wasn't about like the shows and how many people you had there, um, or how much buzz you had in the, in your town, or even if your songs were any good, it was like, do you have a MySpace page? How many followers do you have? You know, what is yeah. your YouTube hits like? You know, it just it it went to a whole different direction that I didn't grow up in, and it just kind of when I finally got the chance to do music, it felt like I wasn't actually prepared for what the music industry was asking for anymore. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, so it, I did it a long time. I actually did music um pretty much all the way like uh, as a as a full-time almost a full-time thing um with with having a day job like when i started actively i was still doing music as a full-time thing and i mm-hmm. i you know obviously needed to afford the habit somehow yeah. um but any weekend i got any vacation time i got um going on weekend tours to new york or to upstate you know wherever just to do like three four mm-hmm. nights of playing shows and then you know, do it. And I did that pretty much until I want to say like 2016 started doing it actively in 03 and did it all the way. Yeah. As far as I could. Incredible. Uh, So yeah, yeah, getting into kind of this transition to (laughs) Tivoli, how did this opportunity come up? What, what led you to going there? And I know it was right after school. Was that correct? Yeah, it was really much right after school. Um, so one of the, you know, one of the things at the college I was, you know, when we were leaving, it was like, oh, we have job placements. And, you know, I just had that, 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 
devil and angel right on my shoulder. It was like, I was, I just want to go be in the band and try to be a rock star. And at the yeah. same time I had my parents being like, you need to get a day job. And so, <laughs> um, so I got this, this, this listing for Tivoli and they needed a customer service person. And it was, you know, just ask answering basic, you know, customer service, you know, stuff doing a little bit of, you know, sales on the phone. Um, and I thought, all right, you know, it, it's, it's hourly. It's not like too intensive. It's something that I could like do and then still have my freedom to do yeah. my music. And so that's, that's what it was. Um, and yeah, I started in 2006. Um, and I pretty much did the customer service gig there for, I would say until 2009 or okay. so. Yeah. And, uh, and at that time, I was really getting kind of burnt out on the customer service thing. You know, I was just day in, day out. And, you know, I was starting to think a little bit about, you know, career in the sense of like, okay, music thing isn't really happening. Like, we didn't have a hit song yet. Yeah. You know, like, what am I going to do? And um, I just, you know, I, I, I made a request into the department of uh, the engineering department and said, look, you know, like, this is what I went to school for. Like, I really have an interest in this. I like the company. I want to stay, mm. you know is there an opening in engineering? And, you know, at first it was like, engineering was a very secretive club in the company. It was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know about that. And you, yeah. know, you kind of have to impress this guy and that guy. And you know, all these guys are really smart brainiacs and, and, yeah. and legends in what they do. Um, and I just was like, all right, well, let's see. And, um, and they did, they took me in and I was a technician, um, mm. you know, troubleshooting issues that were coming up on the products in the market, you know, coming up with solutions, being part of like the product team in terms of, you know, we're running productions and really learning a lot about, you know, applying my interest in audio engineering, um, but really applying it from a practical sense when it came to how we're designing, developing, testing, QCing and manufacturing products. So yeah, um, it was really like a huge transition for me and it, it, I started to really think more seriously about you know, like what it is that I wanted to do for you sure know, uh, once the, the rock star dream started to fade a little bit <laughs> <laughs> for sure now I, I love um, you, you've had so much growth and looking at kind of your resume the ladder you've climbed uh, within Tivoli and in starting small yeah. we typically cover the story of the brand if you can paint that photo so Tivoli launches a few years prior to you joining what did the brand look like at that point what was kind of that reason they launched it the co-founders yeah so um founder tom devesto um and henry close right so tom yep. devesto was um from a lot of companies you know worked in cambridge soundworks you know prior to Tivoli um and was very successful there um and when that kind of came to an end him and henry close who henry was behind Cambridge Soundworks, Advent, KLH, um, you know, a real pioneer when it came to audio, um, yeah. especially consumer audio. Um, they had this idea, like at that time, audio in the home was becoming like 5.1 systems, a lot of bells and whistles, a lot of like, you know, big controllers. And, and Henry just had this idea, he's like, I want to do something simple. I want to do something that sounded good that was simple. It brought him back to his childhood of like AM, FM radio, mm. something that was tactile. Um, and Tom, you know, like the business development and sales guy that he was, uh, that he still is, he's, you know, he, he really had a knack for saying, okay, well, how do we make this thing more than what it is? Mm. And that's where like the design element came in. That's where, you know, the whole 
distribution model that he discovered. And, and here you are, 2000, 2001, you know, shows up to CES. This is the story I was told, shows up to CES yeah. with this prototype radio. Um, you know, the MP3 player had just come out. Yeah. And he's walking around CES saying, like, I'm going to sell millions of these things. And people are looking at him like, like, dude, it's a radio. Like, what are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and three years later, I mean, the company was doing 50 million plus wow. globally um, in radios, right? And at mm. that time, from 2000 to 2006, you're talking about a handful of models. You're talking about our signature model 1BT, um, our PAL BT, uh, a clock radio that we still make called the Model 3, yep. um, and like one or two other products. So it was not like a huge depth, but I think what made it so successful at the time is was that it was simple. It had the appreciation from the audiophile world, mm. and it had a certain level of quality and performance, and 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 at a price point that everyday consumers could could get into. Yeah. Um, and you know, with it was all the different things that other audio companies didn't have. Like we had the the, the colorways and the yeah. styles and the wood and the design, and that really set us apart. And then. That's what it looked like when I came in. So I'm coming into this thing going yeah. like, this is really cool. Like I wasn't a radio listener at the time. You know, I was like everyone else listening to iTunes and, and, and MP3 stuff. Yep. Um, but I thought I, I, from my, my, my days of growing up listening to stuff with my, you know, my dad with turntables and, and eight tracks and things like I was into analog. So I just looked at this radio and went like, this is, this is awesome. It was a life in that thing that, yeah spoke itself much different than just being a product yeah um, which sure. was really was really interesting at the time sure. and still is no I, I agree and to the listeners out there make sure to check out tivoli like if you if you see it i'm looking at one right now and it's insane because it does have that retro beautiful like look and aesthetic but it sounds incredible and it's i mean as we can talk about in the future or here soon is yeah i mean you guys are connecting with bluetooth now they're highly advanced products but just look retro amazing yeah the centerpiece yeah yeah, um, that's that's been our thing to keep that as our roots. You know, yeah. no matter what we do, is the look, the vibe, the feel. You wanted to always have an experience that is so unique. Yeah, for anyone that's experiencing it. So, Definitely. So yeah. yeah, once once you joined on board and kind of growing within your role as well, what does and what did product development look like for so developing like a new a new model, for example? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So well that. It, that was the thing when I got into engineering, you know, we were, um, we had just launched, this is going, this is in 2008, we launched a product called the networks radio mm. and the networks was a very, very early concept of Wi-Fi internet radio that was built into the box itself. Mm. So when I joined in the engineering shortly after, you know, we were learning a lot about this product. We were learning like, all the things and all the tech and all the customer service, all the user capabilities that we didn't experience from an AM FM radio with three knobs. Yeah. You know, we're, we're now dealing with, you know, Wi-Fi interference, all sorts of issues that, you know, we just weren't, weren't that well versed in. So my mm. first, you know, taught my first year there was just like debugging and troubleshooting and living more in like software than I was used to. Yep. Um, but 
what was very apparent at the time is that the company and the industry, specifically the engineering department, we knew that not that our time was going to be short lived with the radios, but we would have had we'd have to start doing new things. You know, at that time, even 20, 20, 2009, 2010, mm. we still didn't even have Bluetooth fully incorporated into our product line. So yep. from from at that time, it was like, okay, how do we take these benchmark things that we have, the sound, the quality, the design, the build quality, all of it, the ease of use, how do mm. we get all that and start to like build that out into new products that have features that, that the customers want? Yeah. Um, and that was everything from Wi-Fi from, to Bluetooth to, you know, now, you know, now we're into you know, wireless chargings and all sorts of, you know, Spotify and this and that. So yeah. that, but at that time it was sort of like the, the point of when I got in, uh, it was me and this other guy that were there, young, younger guys on the team mm -hmm. that we, we helped push that a bit because we were the audience, we were yeah. becoming the audience and the, and the older guys granted widely successful team. And, and, and like I said, pioneers in their own way with respects to engineering and electronics and, and audio for sure. Um, even some of that new tech was lost on them. Mm. So, you know, I was really fortunate at the time I got the opportunity to really be part of like, how do we, how do we shift Tivoli to be moving in a modern direction? Yep, definitely. Yeah. Out of, yeah. Out of curiosity. So once, uh, these new models are developed, how do you guys produce them at scale? What does production facility look like for yeah. example, for you guys? Yeah. So, all right. So we do all of our concepting. We do all of our, uh, designing uh, and, and then most of the development and things we, we, we concepted here in Boston. We've always been headquartered in Boston. Um, we do that here. We do have a team that, that we have in Asia that works closely with the factory partners that we use. Mm -hmm. um, and so generally our, our products, you know, from conception to, to mass production, they can take anywhere from two, you know, one and a half to two years. Yep. Um, most of this stuff when it comes to like software and, and, and user, you know, UX and, and, and audio and all that stuff. That's something that, you know, our team here in Boston stays very close to. I stay still very close to the audio side of things and still working on the you know, EQ and listening and, and all that stuff. Um, but generally, you know, we take that thing in phase. We take all the products in phase. So it goes through several, several phases of prototypes to um, samples that are off tool before that there's samples that are handmade. Mm. Um, and every time we go through those, we're just like tweaking the fit, the finish, making sure the cosmetics look the way we want, making sure that the, the build quality or the, you know, the, the cabinetry or the sound, everything that we thought about from its initial inception on paper, yep. like, is it actually where it should be going? And of course, at some point in there, that's when pricing and, money and the whole concept of how we're going to market it and what's the value and you know can we actually sell it at the right price that we think is the right price for it yep um and we take that all the way through to what we get to the pre-production schedule and the pre-production we start then coming up with samples that are coming off the tools off the line that we're using to engage with our partners our distributors you know close influential uh network that can actually touch and feel and listen and give us real feedback yeah. and say like yes i think we could do this or we could you know maybe you should tweak this or maybe you should do that um and at that time is when we finally say okay this is what we're going to do and this is how it's you know going to look and feel and work um and all the certification stuff starts to 
to take over because mm. we have to do all that. Yep. Um, and then when we get to the production runs, it's like we're producing generally anywhere at a time. We're producing anywhere from uh, 1,500 to 3,000 pieces of any of our models in, you know, a, a few days or a week's time. You know, wow. generally, generally in the throughout the year, we're probably, um, you know, on our bestseller, let's say, like um, our table radio, you know, we're, we're producing over 50,000 pieces a year. Wow. Still of, of an AM FM radio. Wow. Um, and we do it in phases, right? Some of the this, the schedule I just kind of gave you was R and D to new products. But while we're doing that, we're also still in the background, like running production of our current models. Yeah. And working on like uh, you know, updates and firmware updates and even tweaks along the way that, that can help improve the product over time. So we're always kind of like doing new stuff and also tweaking old stuff and yeah. And yeah, uh, it's a lot of like leapfrogging throughout the year of different things. <laughs> For but, sure. Yeah. I love it. Let's get into kind of your your own personal development within the company. So started really yeah. in customer service, went into product design and engineering. And then yeah. I'm curious, when was the role of CEO then granted? And how did you approach that once you, you heard about that? Yeah, so... Um yeah, so I don't tell this. I don't tell this story often. Well, I appreciate um, it, <laughs> and I will tell it because I think it's it's really important to I think you know what what your what your podcast is about here, and I think totally. it's important for entrepreneurs that that might you know find themselves in difficult places in their life and how they use that to turn it into success. Yeah. Um, so in two thousand ten or eleven, I was actually getting jaded on the on the engineering thing. I, I, what I felt was that, at least at Tivoli, I felt we were the engineers in the back and we were the guys who were the geeks, you know, we're tweaking, we're fixing, we're coming up with ideas. And really what I realized, what was moving the needle was all the sales guys and the marketing guys, right? These are the guys who are coming in the back door every day, have the CEOs here and they're like, you know, like, oh, we need to build this. This is what I could sell. I can't sell this. And, yeah. you know, there was a lot of, there's almost a lot of like tension usually between engineers and the sales guys. Yeah. And often what I thought, what I, what I was looking at at the time, the way I perceived it was that it was all just because engineers and sales guys and engineers and marketing guys didn't know how to talk to each other. Yeah. You know, it was like two different brains. Um, so I started to, to, to really get interested in the idea of like wanting to be out and about and networking and understanding business. Mm through my time with music and doing the band and doing all that, that I was developing skills that I didn't even realize at the time. Yeah. I was developing how to, how to network, how to sell my product, which was the music, you yeah. know, how to, how to negotiate, how to book gigs, how to do all this stuff. Right. So I was like, I have the ability to, to communicate, to, to, to network. I'm a people person. I'm outgoing. I can do this. Yeah. Um, and so one day I said to myself, I'm going to leave Tivoli. I literally woke up and I was like, I'm going to leave because I don't think I'm going to be able to do what I, what I think I need to do uh, here. Mm. And later that week, I'm telling you literally for four days, um, I had a very unfortunate event happen to me. I was actually diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh my goodness. And I, you know, the world shifts, right? You're yeah. like, you're like, okay, this is a whole different thing. And it takes you by surprise. And, you know, you realize, okay, I need to slow down. I need to think about my, my health and my future and everything. So I stayed at Tivoli 
because of course, you know, I had I needed my health insurance. I needed certain things to go through that journey. And, yeah. and I did, and I stayed in engineering pretty much the whole time. And throughout that time, I really found like some, some personal time that I was able to share with the CEO at the time. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we would talk about things and I would give my opinion about what, what I felt about Tivoli and what was going on in the department and what I didn't like about it and everything. Yeah. And, um, and then he just, you know, Tom just asked me, so what is it that you want to do? And I was very transparent. I said, well, I was going to leave before all this. And I, I really want to get into business. I want to learn business. And he just looked at me and he's just like, well, if you think you have what it takes to be in business, like you'll work for me and you'll do sales. And I thought like, okay, like that seemed pretty, pretty interesting. So yeah. let's, let's see what that looked like. Um, and I tell you those first couple of months in sales, I was like in over my head. I didn't have the discipline that it took to be in sales, right? To go out mm. there and hustle every day. I thought I, I thought I did, but I didn't know what to expect. And um, and within six months to a year, I found an angle. I started opening channels with this product that most people in the audio industry were never even looking at or thinking about. Mm the dealers and the resellers and all the stores, all the mama papa shops, all the chains, you know, they were already starting to show struggle in early 2010, 2011, 2012. Yeah. Online Amazon was starting to come about. And, um, and I just said, you know what, I want to focus on B2B. I want to focus on things that, that connect the product with people in different ways. So I started thinking about hotel business and selling to hotels I started finding ways to place the products into um, HBO and Showtime series. Um, I started trying to do like customs and collaborations with brands like doing limited editions. Mm. Um, And at first it was like really hard because you were pitching a lot and you weren't getting the success. Yeah. And you're thinking to yourself like, is this going to work? And then like three years later, you're doing that. I had global contracts with Marriott and starwood i had hbo netflix showtime you know buying stuff for their sets for their you know for their shows um we were doing business with with partners and and companies that most audio brands would never go near i mean we were selling in nordstrom's we were selling in you know urban outfitters we were selling in all these places that like weren't your typical best buys and and, and, and electronic shops right for sure um and so i just i i you know for me I realized at that point that I had a real love for the product mm-hmm. and I really cared about it. And I thought something different about it than I think people would see it from face value. I really had a connection with it and I made it, I made it work. Wow. Um, and so I did that and I was running sales by 2015. I was running the North American sales for Tivoli. Um, That's incredible. And started to dip my toe into some of the European stuff because we were very dominant in Europe. Um, just kind of looking into the hotel business there and things and different B2B segments. Um, but then in 2015, there was a huge change in the company. The, the um, investment group, we're always, you know, we're a private company, we've always been. Um, yep. But the investment group involved, they just felt like there needed to be a change. Um, and at that point, they made a very big you know, move with upper management, you know, remove pretty much everybody that was at the top mm. um, at the time and had and had ideas to sell it from their portfolio. Um, 
and myself and um, now our CFO and um, dear friend and, and, and business partner, um, Daniel Tanisov, he was a controller at the time. Him and I were looked at like, okay, you're the, you're the veterans here now. So, you know, what can we do to resurrectively into a new, a new light? And it's not to say at the time it was going south. It was just that we had so much more competition by 2015. I mean, yeah. you had Sonos coming out, you had Bose reinventing themselves as a personal audio brand. Yep. Um, and then there was more and more new brands every day. It seemed like every other year there was a new audio brand or some headphone company or something. For sure. So we really, you know, had, I think the, 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 the message was we have to really shift and invent and reinvent and also stripped back a little bit. And you know, at that time we were pretty fat as a company, you know, yeah. we, we were a big company and we had a lot of, you know, good things, but also when you get big, you have a lot of more problems and definitely de debts and fats and redundancies and things like that. So um, we went through a couple of tough years there. You know, we were sold to a company that was only really around for a short period of time to like kind of get us through the transition. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, I went back into product, even though I was doing sales, I went back into being head of brand and brand development. Okay. Um, so still focusing on sales, but kind of getting back into what is it we have to do from a product point yep. to get to get through a hurdle and what do we do? And that's when like the art line or Wi-Fi line and some other new products that we sell today started to come about. Mm. Um, and from there, we performed in 2018 a management buyout with ourselves and a, and, a, and a private investor. And at that time in 2018 is when, um, you know, they looked at Dan and I and said, well, you know, you guys are the ones who've been keeping this thing going. So they appointed him the CFO and myself as CEO. Wow. Incredible, yeah. incredible story. Um, looking back at some of that journey, I mean, a lot of product development, some of the retail expansion that you went into. As CEO, what what kind of milestone would you say you're most proud of? Even before CEO, like just a part of your journey at Tivoli, what milestone would you say? Uh, I think the thing that, that sticks out in my mind and I think a, a lesson or an experience that I will always carry, I think as a, as a business person and as an individual is what what I had to do during the time of all that transition, you know, I, we, we had to really be thinking on our toes and problem solving. We didn't have, you know, all the cash at all every time we could to throw it at problems and make them go away. Yeah. Um, we had to keep integrity in the business. We had to keep employees engaged. We, we did a lot of changes and we made, cuts we did all the things that they tell you to do and you're you know going through transition but we did it and we never lost our employee base like we never had huge layoffs i always made sure that we mm. kept the integrity the heartbeat of what was making us work yeah um and found other ways and, and and to make things happen the way we wanted to and when we started to see that it was it took a while but once we started to see that it was working it was just a slow and steady pace yeah um you know, I was really proud because I didn't have a business degree. I didn't have like a background in business. I didn't go to yeah. business school. And I started to realize like I was getting some real life business entrepreneurial experience mm. that I don't think you could ever get yeah. in a classroom. Um, and for me, that that was like one of the, the moments when it was like 2019, 
into 2020. Granted, 2020 was an interesting year for everybody, but in 2019, I started to get this glimpse of what we were doing and what we were talking about, how we were positioning the brand, what we were making, and everything really started mm. to click. Um, and I felt like it was like finally the new chapter had yeah. arrived that we started back in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, I like to conclude uh, each episode with this. I think that segue is perfect. Um, if you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur or someone just growing in their own career, something you've learned, regret along the way, what would you say that would be? Um, I think what I've learned along the way is probably the same thing that maybe I, I sometimes have regretted. Um, always, always believe in yourself. It's sometimes easy to get discouraged. And when you're in an entrepreneurial position, um, you have to believe in yourself when nobody else does. Yeah. And if you don't believe in yourself, then the people around you, your, your business, you know, colleagues and your employees, they, they will have a hard time following you. Um, and I, and I really, and I really connect with that because everyone can have great ideas and it, but great ideas only become successful when you have, um, when you have partnerships, you know, success isn't a solo thing. You need a network, you need, you know, partners and employees and, and colleagues. Um, and you do that, you get those relationships by communication and, and then being uh, able to articulate your ideas yep. um, and also being able to listen to how other people can make your ideas better. Mm. Um, and I've been able to experience that in both good ways and bad ways, but um, that'd be my, my number one thing. And I think the, the one thing I always say, and I'll leave you with that is, yep. be, comfort be comfortable with rejection and mm. failure because it. it happens. And the more you can just get through that and like learn from it and pick yourself up and move forward, you'll realize down the road that all those projections and all those failures, like they weren't as dramatic as you thought they were mm, at the time. For sure. That they were just like a little piece of the puzzle. I love it. Well, Paul, yeah. thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Tivoli Audio at tivoliaudio.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, Leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.